Hello, I'm Bill Lawrence, and it's time for Bill's Big Bag of Onions. Few could accuse America's early trade history of lacking drama. Rules requiring American ships to send most of their cargo via British shores bred resentment against the colonial rulers. In 1773, when the British government tried to put smugglers out of business by slashing the official duty on tea, the Boston Tea Party protest followed, leading to an embargo and, ultimately, a war of independence. After the American Constitution gave authority on trade matters to Congress, the stage was set for centuries of wrangling. On the surface, tariffs did seem boring. Specific duties for items like molasses, salt and nails were motivated by the need for tax revenue. Between 1790 and 1860, tariffs accounted for 90% of the federal tax take. But beneath the tangle of bureaucracy, bigger debates raged. Proponents wanted to shelter nascent industries, but opponents worried that they would shelter inefficient producers, push up prices and encourage smuggling. Looking into the face of the good snow Should be shaking it loose, but you do it all. Mm-hmm. 
Every look is a truth and it's written in stone Gotta keep it together when your friends come back Always checking the weather but they wanna know why Even birds of a family find it hard to fly Thought I saw at my feet an origami crow Conversations were not loud, the air was serious, books stood between glasses, and the lighting was decidedly dim. Men wore corduroy jackets, turtlenecks, dirty trench coats, their hair a little too long, while women wore no makeup. Nobody was dressed fashionably, but everyone had style. Left Bank, Ms. Poirier's delightful account of the writers, artists, and painters who shared beds, cigarettes, and column inches on a few streets in the 1940s, returns frequently to the Café de Flore. Simone de Beauvoir used it as her letterbox, its warmth a reprieve from the unheated hotel room she lived in on the nearby Rue de Seine. She and Jean-Paul Sartre, plus their coterie of anti-bourgeois writers and muses, wrote and smoked at its tables, a short step from Sartre's little apartment on the Rue Bonaparte. Manuscripts were edited there and a radical philosophy born. It was, in short the epicenter of French intellectual life. Time has stopped And I'm floating there on air I can watch myself My head is elsewhere I'm suspended Suspended in midair But surprise, surprise, I'm still here, so there. Cognition is a billion years ago somewhere. Let's slip out of this life we know into some timeless repose. Hey, come on, let's go down to 73 below. Let's go sliding down the scale. Identity on another self plane, and you will be sustained with cryoreservatives, robotized enzymes, nucleotides in time, vitrification. Brain edit, you will get it if you let it frozen. Sliding down the scale With downtown 
Bill's big bag of onions.
Some things have improved, of course, he says. In the past, we believed children will never grow hair if women eat eggs during pregnancy. Now we know better. Still, my grandchildren cannot speak our local language. Bow-legged, he announces he must go to a funeral. He walks out of the bar and along a banana grove. Above him, the mountain is sheathed in cloud. Unprompted, he says, Bananas are flowers, not trees. When he doesn't get a response, he walks into the grove and starts pulling down leaves that are flapping like sails. By the time he's done, nothing is left of the plant. He says, See? No trunk. Bananas are just rolled up leaves. When he returns to the track, he says, Bananas are radioactive as well. A check online reveals he is right. The scientists refer to a banana-equivalent dose, a tiny measure of radiation similar to eating one banana. to Bill's Big Bag of Onions. There's a fairly simple way to explain some of these differences. Some jobs require really specific hours and others are more flexible. Take your prototypical businesswoman. Maybe she's a venture capitalist, maybe she's an accountant. Either way, she has a pretty standard nine to five schedule so she can meet with other business people or with clients. And if she's not available to her clients when they need her, her bosses won't think she's doing a good job. Now, compare that to a scientist who works in a lab. Most of her work is self-directed, and it doesn't really matter when she runs her experiments, as long as she gets them done. For the millions of women in jobs that demand very specific hours, the wage gap is larger than it is for women in jobs with more flexible hours. And there's one job where we can see this really clearly. 
In the 1970s, women pharmacists earned about 66% of what men did. Pharmacies used to be mostly independent businesses where a single pharmacist might be responsible for keeping a shop open whenever people needed it. Today, most pharmacies are owned by large chains and they stay open longer, which means they need more pharmacists. Women pharmacists now have a lot more options and a 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. shift is just as good as a nine to five shift. Nobody really gets rewarded for working exceptionally long hours. And the wage gap for pharmacists has shrunk dramatically. Today, female pharmacists make 92% of what their male counterparts do. Of course, we can't all be pharmacists. There will always be jobs where it's important to work particular hours. But there are also lots of jobs where hours could potentially become more flexible than they are right now. And the research tells us that the more we can make that work, the more the wage gap is going to shrink. The wind is in from Africa. Last night I couldn't sleep. Oh, you know it sure is hard to leave here, Carrie, but it's really not my home. My fingernails are filthy. I've got beach tar on my feet. And I miss my clean white linen and my fancy French cologne. Oh, Carrie, get out your cage. A bottle of wine And we'll laugh and toast to nothing And smash our empty glasses down Let's have a round for these freaks and these soldiers A round for these friends of mine Let's have another round for the bright red devil Who keeps me in this tourist town Come on, Carrie, get out your cake I'll go to Rome And rent me a grand piano And put some flowers around my room But let's not talk about Fairly Wells now The night is a starry dawn And they're playing that scratchy rock and roll Beneath the mantle of moon Come on, Carrie, get out your cane Get out your cane Put on some silk Put on some silk You're a mean old dad I couldn't sleep Oh, you know it sure is hard to leave you But it's really not my home Maybe it's been too long a time Since I was scrambling down in the street Now they got me used to that clean white linen And that fancy French cologne Oh, Carrie, get out your cake In the 1980s, as newly democratic Spain began to recover its public memory of civil war and dictatorship, this Catalan trade unionist emerged as the charismatic spokesman for Spanish survivors of deportation to German concentration camps. In countless talks, Mr. Marco brought tragic history to life, bearing witness to Nazi barbarism. Then, in 2005, a historian unmasked him as an imposter, a compulsive, bare-faced liar. Mr. Marco had gone to Germany, but as a volunteer worker, not an inmate. He fabricated his anti-Franco exploits. Yet, after exposure, the shameless charlatan justified his pretense as a noble, altruistic lie that opened younger eyes to the evils of the Holocaust. Unabashed, this novelist of himself continued to gild his biography with an epic luster. As an author who juggles reality and fiction, he interrogates his own attraction to this saga of deceit. Perhaps only an imposter could tell the story of an imposter. As he peels away the onion skin around this P. 
fearless trickster, does the narrator also create a saintly fiction of himself as the fearless slayer of falsehoods? I think how far the onion has troubled. Just to enter my stew today, I could kneel and praise all small forgotten miracles. Crackly paper peeling on the drainboard, pearly layers in smooth agreement, the way the knife enters onion, and onion falls apart on the chopping block, its history revealed. And I would never scold the onion for causing tears. It is right that tears fall for something small and forgotten. Now, at meal, we sit to eat, commenting on the texture of meat or the herbal aroma, but never on the translucence of onion, now limp, now divided, or its traditionally honorable career for the sake of others 
disappear. The Oxford Dictionary defines ritzy as expensively stylish. When Ritz and Escoffier arrived in London from Europe, they had been hired to transform the Savoy. They were shocked. This was the greatest city on earth, yet its hotels were dismal. Their restaurants were unsophisticated, their kitchens filthy, and their chefs rude and often drunk. Together, they revolutionised London society. Ritz purged the Savoy of its old-fashioned fussy trinkets and replaced them with elegant palm trees and banks of flowers. Escoffier introduced to the kitchens the concepts of electric light, hygiene, and sobriety. We are not drunks; we're cooks. Food was fresh and gently marinated in delicate sauces. The guests were marinated in the finest bubbly. The meals were astonishing. They were flavored not merely with the garlic that Escoffier championed; popular opinion considered it unrefined and repulsive, but with a whiff of fin de siècle extravagance. This show is going really well. This unsheltered place, till I could see the face behind the face. All that gone before had left no trace. Down by the railway siding. In a secret world, we were colliding, and all the places we were hiding, love. What was it we were thinking of? So I watched you wash your hair. Underwater, unaware. And the plane flies through the air. Did you think you didn't have to choose it? A tie alone could win or lose it. And all the places we were hiding. Was it we were thinking of? In this house of make believe, divided into like Adam and Eve. You put out and. I receive down by the railway siding in a secret world we were colliding in all the places we were hiding love. What was it we were thinking of? And the world is turning round and round. The house is crumbling, but still we stand. With no guilt, no shame, no sorrow or blame. Whatever it is, we're all the same. Making it up in our secret world.
shaking it up in a secret world, breaking it up, making it up in a secret. Seeing things that were not there, on a wing and on a prayer, in this state of disrepair. Down by the railway siding. In the secret world, we were colliding In all the places we were hiding love What was it we were thinking of? What was it we were thinking of?
If you feel that your shyness has held you back and prevented you from living a full life, this audiobook will give you the tools you need to open yourself up to all that you've been missing out on because of the shyness factor. Most likely, you felt limited by your shyness and are hoping to find some answers. Fortunately, there are many answers. You're not destined to live a life of quiet desperation on the sidelines because of shyness, social anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder, or even autism. The most important thing to remember is to take things one step at a time. You can't eat the whole pizza at once, unless you want to get sick, and overcoming shyness is no different. It's not just about getting over your fear of rejection. It'll go to the very core of how you live your whole life. Statistics show that people who live solitary lives don't live as long as those who enjoy deep and meaningful connections with family and friends. Each step you take to vanquish the fear that is holding you back will add more years to your life, and perhaps more life to your years. If you want a more socially active life, and want to be able to have conversations with others, even complete strangers, without wanting to run and hide? Give yourself the gift of human interaction to help you deal with and overcome the pain of shyness. So you should be able to find something that addresses your particular challenges. It's necessary for a full life and second only to food, safety, and shelter when it comes to our most basic human needs.
You are listening to Bill's Big Bag of Onions. Many remember noticing their mother's unspoken marital frustrations. Ian McEwan's was silenced by her military husband's iron certainties. Andrew Motions escaped into a world of books at odds with her spouse's guns and fishing rods. Lyndall Gordon's endured a boredom that deadens the air around my father. As a child, Miss Gordon determined never to settle for a blocked-off man like husbands of my mother's generation. This post-war generation features repeatedly, as it does in Jacqueline Rose's Mothers, an essay on love and cruelty. These were the mothers, writes Ms. Rose, who found themselves, after a devastating war, under the harshest obligation to be happy and fulfilled in that role, as though their function as mothers was to kiss the world better, wipe away its tears and smile. Mothers is a passionate polemic, not just against that obligation bound as it is to fail, but against its personal and political implications. What are we doing to mothers, Miss Rose asks, when they are expected to carry the burden of everything that is hardest to contemplate about our society and ourselves? It is a big question with many layers.
as a 12-year-old, Cassius Clay did take up boxing to avenge a stolen bike, but his parents also bought him a replacement scooter. As a young contender, he had been fond of his birth name, which sounded gladiatorial. As an Olympic champion, he proudly displayed his medal for years after winning it, and did not, as a later book claimed, hurl it into the Ohio River in anger about segregated restaurants. Forever boasting of his bravery, Ali was scared of flying, shy around girls when he was young, he fainted after trying to kiss one, and nervous before his fights. For all his wit and rhymes, his schoolmates thought him as dumb as a box of rocks, and he was barely literate. Mr. Ige's portrait is of a man who professed to do everything on instinct, inside the ring and out. His impulses grappled with each other throughout his life. Ali was ravenous for fame, but he did not have to be liked. He whipped white Americans into a fury and called his black opponents Uncle Toms. He had to be known, which is why he knocked on doors advertising his fights as a teenager and trained by sprinting beside the school bus. This vowel is usually the hardest, although they're all really interesting and fun. So the O. The O. You're hearing it now going, I don't know what that is. It sounds like an R. It sounds like an O. It sounds like a kookaburra. Yeah, it's all those things. So, I'm going to break it down for you. Okay? So, the lips are closing in for an O. O. Mm, yeah, just do it. O. Uh-huh. And then the tongue gets to do this fun sweep where it goes down and up and around. Like, it makes this little cup and then it comes up for an R shape. R. So, you can say R. R. R, R, good, R, and then let's bring the lips in, R, 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 good, and we just soften the tongue down a little bit, so it doesn't quite get into an R, R, and we really finish it off, the finishing touch of the cream on the pavlova is the, is the lips, you know, the lips, so, R, Good. Oh. If you're having a bit of trouble, get a mirror and just isolate, you know, just go back and forth and isolate the R and the O and just relax the, the end of that R a wee bit. So you're just saying O, O. FM with Bill. It was the onions. Big bag of onions. It was the onions. Big bag of onions. It was the onions. Give me half a chance 
been accompanying you through a world of music and spoken word. Join me again shortly for the other half of my big bag of onions.